Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Toby Hemmings. The anticipation is building as we wait for the federal election to be called, with both parties beginning informally campaigning for votes, all eyes are now on the polls, once described by George Gallup as the pulse of democracy, to find out what the common people are saying. Opinion polls inform decisions and coverage inside and outside political parties. That said, the past few years haven't been kind to pollsters. Polling prior to the 2019 election missed the support for the Liberals that led to Scott Morrison's re-election. So what's changed over the past three years? Are polls still relevant to our understanding of politics? Or have they lost touch with the average punter? To discuss all things polling, I'm joined by two experts in the field. Peter Lewis, Executive Director of Essential, who does polling for The Guardian Australia. And John Utting, Executive Director of Utting Research. Peter, John, welcome to Fourth Estate. Hi, Guy. Welcome. So we're building up to the biggest day of the year, not only for politicians or political reporters, but definitely for pollsters. We've got a federal election that we have to get done sometime in the first half of this year. I suppose I wanted to start with a look back to 2019. John, the polls missed Scott Morrison's electoral victory. How important is it for pollsters to get a little bit closer with this upcoming election? Oh, look, it's 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 all... It, you. It's always important to be as accurate as it's possible to be, you know. Like, and I, I, I think the industry basically um, managed to deal with with the problems in 2019 quite well. Um, but you have to say that if there was a replication this time around, it would create a lot of doubts amongst you know significant proportions of a population about about the accuracy of the industry. But. Um, you know, my, my my sort of assessment is that also this election now will be a lot easier to um to get right. You know, twenty nineteen was a very close election where very small differences made a big difference. This election is going to be, I think, a very clear cut election, so it'll be harder in a way to sort of get it wrong. What was it about twenty nineteen where people missed the mark, and I suppose what's changed in the intervening few years? Well, look, 2019 was a very close election. I, I think I think the deciding margin was about 49 and a half to um to, to, to 50 and a half. What you've also got to remember is on a purely statistical basis, just stripping out any methodological problems that may exist. You know, the margins of errors in most of the in, in samples of about you know a thousand or fifteen hundred, which is the sort of a commercial um sort of samples that are used for polling, are always in about three or four percent um. um Range. Um, don't get me going at the margin of error. Margin of error is a complicated issue in itself because there's actually a margin of error on the margin of error. So when you've got you know very close elections um, and, and you've got these margins of errors that cut across it, you know it actually expects sometimes to be not right on the mark. Um, 
I think the question back to 2019, which was kind of um, a really interesting statistical question about this, um, and this was brought and commented out by the Vice Chancellor, I think, of ANU, is that some of the polls for 2019 just produced for months and months and months an almost unchanging number. I think it was about 51. Um, and there were some calculations, you know, which goes against all the sort of laws of probability and variation. Interesting phenomena, you know, and some of the work that's been done showed that the chance of this happening, you know, was like one and a half a million or something like that. So, um, you know, the, it's just got to do with methodology, closeness of the result, um, error, difficulty of you know, putting together, increasing difficulty of putting together the samples. You know, polling is a lot more difficult than it in fact looks. Peter, in terms of putting together the representative sample, how has that changed for you and your work at Essential? Uh, well, the representative the representative sample is really about making sure that the the numbers that you talk to are broadly reflective of the the population and. Um, John goes back a little bit longer than than I do on this, but the you know the early days of market research was door to door, and um, then it moved to telephone, and then it's moved to to online. And each time you've got to take different measures to ensure that your sample's representative. We work off online panels where we ensure that we've got our different um, quotas filled on different demography. Um, one of the real distortions has been the rise of what's called robo-polling, which are basically you automatically poll an entire electorate and then weight it back on an average, which my reading was that's why you tended to get um, a stabilisation that was unhealthy before 200, 2019. What we have changed, and, and I, I, I totally agree with John, the problem with 2019 wasn't that the polls were outside the margin of error. It was that we were... we'd 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 mislearned how to read polls in two ways. One was that it created some certainty about the future where polls are only ever um, a representation of where people are at a particular moment. Um, but also this um, sense that um, there was someone ahead and someone behind. Um, so, and, and that would end up with this idea horse race reporting that a poll would move 1% and there'd be a front page in the Australian that some random event had led to a percentage rise and most of it was, was rubbish. Um, what we did after 2019, though, was have a look at um, how our poll was used and we had a really good discussion with our partners at Guardian Australia and we made two critical changes. The first was one of our insights was that the way that we, particularly that two-party preferred, um, is represented that um, people that don't have a view are taken out of the sample. So what happens is we ask once, who are you going to vote for? And then a second time, well, who may you lean to? And if people can't answer that, they're taken out, even though they're going to be forced to vote on election day. So we thought that was a distortion. And what we were effectively doing was disenfranchising the disengaged from our polling. So we've changed ours to what we call 2PP+, where we are reporting um, the major parties with preference flow, but leaving that number in because ultimately they're the people who make calls late in the piece that will determine um, the outcome of an election. If they break one way, that the final number will either be 
definitive on one side or the other, it will be a close election. But the second thing we did was that we said, we're not going to put it out fortnight by fortnight with Guardian. We'd put it out in blocks of three months, which was a discipline of getting away from just using this as almost like a scoreboard on politics, because that was never its intention. So I think we... We've ended up building alternate matrix to understand what's going on, such as approval on the pa- handling of the pandemic or or trust in institutions. Um, and I think we've, we've, at, we've been able to build out a fuller picture of what's going on. So keep the undecideds in. Now, it's interesting. One of our competitor pollsters, um, Resolve, which is the poll that the um, nine newspapers use, do the exact opposite to the state when someone says they don't know, they force them. They don't actually give them a choice. And so they, th- their approach to that is to, rather than saying you haven't made up your mind yet, we'll keep give you a voice, it is to say you've got to choose someone. And um, time will tell, but it feels to me that that's going to lead to an overrepresentation of independence, which is the safe harbour when you don't know where you're going to vote. I mean, it's very interesting to hear you talk about how you've shifted it when you think about that one of the, if you're on Twitter, one of the hallmarks of whenever polls come out is there are certain journalists who start tweeting, wow, news poll or something along those lines, Mm. that they've seen a number that means something to them that they're inferring from. Do you think that, you know, you've talked about how you've moved away from a certain horse race mentality Toby, let me jump into this because, you know, you've brought up an interesting issue. The other part of this whole polling debate actually has to do with the media. You know, people know about polls not because they commission them themselves and they get the opportunity of, you know, analysing the data that comes in. People only know about polls because they're reported through to them in the media. And I'd say that one of the really big problems is how badly polling's reported in this country. You know, you can read suppose polling reports that won't tell you the sample size, um, um, uh, often don't tell you actually when it was done. Um, and don't, well, you know, don't, don't give you the questions or anything like this. You know, Peter's brought up a very interesting point. These robo-polls, which are, you know, a pretty low-level sort of stuff, you know, like, for instance, if you do a robo-poll, I'll, 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 I'll give you an example of one. If, if, if you do a robo-poll, um, you, to get a thousand interviews, um, you'll make a hundred and fifty thousand calls. Um, um, you know, to, to, to get to get those thousand results, um, but you don't find the journalists, you know, sort of, you know, um, having any kind of sort of um, capacity to sort of analyse the quality of the sort of information they're getting, or not being prepared to analyse the quality of the information. And I think that's one of the big problems from, uh, you know, in it is that I don't think the journals do a good enough job of reporting polling. And um, and which is essentially one way to keep everybody on track. Peter, what do you think? Do you think there is this issue in how reporters engage with the data? Yeah, and I think um, one of the reasons we've changed our approach is almost to recognise that and we don't want our stuff being used um, in that way. I think one of the, the positive outcomes of 2019's so-called polling failure, and I'm using air quotes there, um, is that um, media outlets have said we it's on us to find other inputs as well. One of my reflections was that polling reached such an important um, status in politics because 
other inputs into understanding what were going on were falling away. Traditionally, there would be more reporters in communities and locally building up insights, whereas if it's all concentrated in Canberra, the journalists are as far away as what's going on the road on the ground as the politicians are. Um, in an era when you had active civil society, be it trade unions or business chambers or other groups, there was a way of community mood to be bubbling up to the surface through through various processes that were, I guess, in a way more qualitative than quantitative. And then as those things broke away, all we were left with was the scoreboard. And then the other interesting thing for about a decade, most of the polls got it right. And it was within the margin of error. And I think the most of us pollsters were ready to take the the you know the the bouquets for getting it right, whereas we all knew deep down that it was margin of error. But then all of a sudden, the margin of error, you're at the edge of it, and then all of a sudden, you've got it wrong. So there's a few things going on there. the 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 decline of of the newsroom, the decline of civil society, and that sort of infrastructure of, of organisational and also a bit of good luck on behalf of the pollsters for about a decade. Polling's moved more from, you know, calling people on landlines to this mobile internet polling. With internet polling in particular, how do you find these people in a representative sample? You know, how do you verify mm. that these people are who they say they are, you know, that it's not somebody stacking the deck in one way or another? Uh, Oh, they're, they're, there's actually brokers, there's panel brokers, there's a number of companies that just build lists and there's incentives for it and people need to fill out their, their demographic details. And yet maybe someone can fill out false, but gee, that's a, that's um, there, there's better ways to distort the public debate, just jump on Facebook, you know. Like I don't think the cunning plan to falsely register yourself in, a, in an, an online panel is the way that you're going to sort of make mischief. Um, but you know, it's a it's a it's a it's an industry, and so recruitment of of lists is something that all research companies have strategies for. Um, one of the really interesting things at the moment, I'm sure John can attest to this as well. In the key marginal seats, particularly in Queensland, it's really hard to recruit groups because everyone's doing research. Like, and the panels are pretty much exhausted, and you know, there's only a limited number of people that put their hand up to be part of that sample, and um, it, it it's challenging. Um, you know the other the other the other piece of research that goes on is there's much more big data um, uh, strategies of different companies of of just observing what people do online rather than asking them and that's a whole other realm of insight particularly around economic activity and that sort of thing. Peter's brought up a very interesting point and I think it's it's it got, got massive salience. Uh, uh, the polling industry now, especially because so much of it is online, is now completely in the hands of these panel providers. You know, these are the people who produce the raw material for the polling industry. Mm. Nobody knows very much about these companies, where they are, who they you know, you know, who owns them, how they operate, or anything like this. So while while the company, while the polling industries are you know under increased scrutiny, the producers of the raw material that this industry um, rely on are a complete mystery. Now, I know from my experience, mm. you talk about these panel providers, there's an immense um, difference in the sort of their quality, their sort of ethics, sort of how they operate and stuff like this. And this is probably the big, dark area of modern polling, 
no one really knows very much about the people who are providing the respondents. I mean, that's really interesting because, again, when you think about it, these polls are kind of an essential part of modern political life. They're what uh, political parties rely on in a lot of ways, making some pretty big decisions regarding not only policy, but who's going to front up uh, to, to lead the party and stuff along those lines. Peter brought up a very interesting point. I know about this. I won't comment in detail. But in Queensland, there are really about one and a half or two companies that provide nearly all the respondents for all polling that goes on. Everybody has to use them. And the other thing that's happened side by side without trying to pull out the violins is that the the the, the political polling industry in Australia is probably three or four companies. Um, the... The, the the interruption of robo polling has pushed down the prices really low and there's 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 ve- you know those of us that do political polling do it because we love it not because we're going to become wealthy people out of it um there there's this there's this assumption that these polling companies have you know all these resources because they're putting out something on the guardian or they're they're, they're working for a, a major political party it is tight and hard and you know I remember fronting up to a group of academics after the last, um, you know, federal election and they were all going to me, why did you guys get it so wrong? Why aren't you doing this or that? And it was going, we do not have your resources of university institutions. We are working, you know, we work long days, long hours, and we're doing what we can with what's in front of us in an environment where, automation is disrupting things and creating a demonstrably inferior product that the market takes because it's cheaper. So it's, it's, again, I'm not whinging about, I'm just saying that part of, part of this is that it is really hard to do good research and you've got to value it. The difference between a phone poll and a robo poll, I reckon John is probably 1500 to 20,000 for a, for a, for a marginal seat, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, Peter, Peter makes a very good point. You know, like, I can speak from experience from both the political world and um, the corporate world. You know, most of our clients would be in the top half a dozen corporations in Australia. Political polling is a poor man's business. Um, um, You know, the the people who run the political parties don't want to pay very much. The media people don't want to pay anything um, 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 for their polls. It is a really skin flint, tight ass business to be in. Yeah, most people are in it because in, in a political thing because you know they sort of think they have a sense of responsibility. But if if you're doing a poll for a, a big mainstream corporation, the resources you can bring to it are like ten to twenty times in terms of the quality, um, the operations, um, how you do it. Peter says this robo polling. I, I say this because I know this because I've got my background is in computer science and statistics. But a smart teenager could put together a robo polling um, operation off his laptop in his bedroom. If if you're saying that there is that price difference between a robo poll and a, 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 a phone poll, then certain media outlets might feel as though, well, we have to save money where we can, even though it leads to inferior. Uh, polling that then 
is picked up and used in the media cycle. Whatever's the opposite to a virtuous cycle, I think is happening in political polling. We call it a death spiral. That's not that bad, though, because what holds it together is um, building up experience over, you know, years and decades, um, finding ways to get the right sample out in the field and being intelligent in the way both you ask questions and the way you use it. But I do think that polling is um, a gatekeeper. I think the, the, the established operations... There's been a, an organisation called the Australian Polling Council formed since the last election, and there's a real attempt to, to share a bit of methodology and to really um, recognise that the sector needs to have a degree of um, integrity and um, professionalism that um, bears scrutiny. Because you're right, it is important, and it's important to get right. These polls have been used as justification for tonnes of different policies, things, leadership changes. Coming up to this election, if we're talking about robo-polling, do you think that we are going to see certain results or certain numbers start to pop up that will be wildly off or, or just off comparative well, to... So so, oh. so the use of robo-polls is actually part of a media strategy and the people doing it know they're not going to get a real insight. And it's up to, the, again, educating the media. So you get these trash stories that say... Such, you know, a poll of, you know, 400 constituents in insert seat thinks insert issue is the most important issue. And it's almost being done just to get a headline because that's what they think is going to build some. So there is, I think if the media wanted to improve the way they report on polls, yes, talk about margin of error, but also don't carry stories that are, are the result of a robo poll. Um, it's because very, it's not real research. It's it's very interesting. A lot of these polls now are used as as vehicles to get press releases up, and 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 the mm. people in the, and, and as, as, as much as I support what they do, a lot of climate change type outfits specialise in this thing. You know, they'll, they'll they'll do one of these cheap and nasties, and they'll use it as the basis of a press release. <laughs> Um, Which actually creates a false narrative, actually, John, doesn't it? Like yeah, it, 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 it's create your own adventure, create your own reality. We talk about fake news everywhere else, but there is a sense in which these poor polling tools can create false realities as well. With some of these polling, then, is it just that you put the number out there and the story is the number? Yeah. You do a media search. Like, you know, um, you will find, st- and like to their credit, a lot of the media companies are cutting down on just running stories based on a poll. Like, you know, we run it, and that's different from us running the Guardian Essential poll and having a, a temperature check and Catherine writing a piece and me writing a rave. Like, I, I, I think that's a good use of polling because we're trying to make sense of it. But if you're trying to use a robo-poll as a proof point of how the population is on a particular issue, you are really you know, stretching the argument. <laughs> I mean, the thing that I always think about in terms of polling always comes back to the likability of prime ministers and stuff because, you know, the bulletin cover with John Howard on it missed a, what, 18% or something. And and people often bandy about likability in those terms as well, you know, 30-something percent of all mm. uh 
all respondents believe that so-and-so is, you know, the preferred prime minister or not the preferred prime minister. Like, Well, preferred prime minister in itself is a stupid rating because it's a false equivalent. You're asking preferred prime minister when one person is the prime minister and the other person isn't the prime minister. So it's actually, if you cut it down, it's a pretty problematic um, matrix. How many of these matrices that we've established as, oh, this is just the norm and this is just how we cover it and this just comes out every Mm. so often, how many of these are like that, are just these hollow numbers that are pointless? Look, it's, it's very interesting. The preferred prime ministers of you know, like we, I, I, I had my staff do an analysis on on this preferred prime minister um, statistic over about twenty years of polling results, and and there's actually no correlation with vote outcome and the preferred prime minister readings. And um, and you know, just just to give you an example of this, to put a bit of flesh on that. Two of the highest preferred prime minister scores we ever got were by Alexander Downer and Mark Latham. You know, so I think other people have done it, but there's a lot of statistical studies showing that, that no real relationship between preferred prime minister um, on that, no real relationship between approval rating and opposition vote. Um, but there is a relationship, a, quite a, a relatively... Um, strong correlation between prime minister's approval rating and um, and mm. um, voting intention, which sort of makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's where I, one of the things that was really interesting over the last couple of years. I haven't shared this with you, John, but even when we had approval of the government's handling of the pandemic, pandemic up in the sixties and the seventies, the the leadership and the party thing still was pretty stable. Um, but what's happened over the last six months as we get close to the election is they're almost correlating now. Um, so it's almost like for most of the election cycle, it's a hypothetical the who you're going to vote for. You want to know what how people are feeling, and it's only when you get to the pointy end, like about now, that even those questions are worth asking. But, um, you know, what am I, you know, if I'm trying to look at how this election's going to play out and people ask me to give predictions. I'm saying, well, the polling's always going to have it within a fairly, you know, look, I think the polls picked the the wave that that led to both um, Rudd beating Howard and then um, and then Abbott beating um, Rudd. So when the tide goes out, I think the polls pick it up. But in, when it's close, it's a bit of a crapshoot. If you look at history, though, I think this is the most interesting thing. If you look at history, since World War II, there has not been a close election that's fallen to the opposition. When governments change, they change in a wave. So I think polls are really useful for picking up changes of government. I think their their utility in close elections are less um, than maybe we like to think. Look, that's a really interesting aspect. And I, look, I could listen to both of you explain the ins and outs of your industry and uh, be stunned uh, even more so uh, for much, much longer. But uh, I'm conscious of the time. I did want to end by asking you both, going forward, what are you looking for in the polling, maybe that you're doing, but also that you're seeing others do as we lead up to this election? Peter, I think you've kind of answered that, but if you want to have another crack. Look, I I think the one thing that um, is the hardest is sort of thinking through where preferences flow. I think that the teal independents will be difficult to read because they haven't been 
active before um, and the impact of Palmer, we're not sure of yet. His media buy is massive, but where does that lead in the end? Last time it was effectively a vote against Labor campaign at the end. So I think the the bits that are going to be, and, and given that it is one or 2% games when you're trying to sort of build a, a, a national model, I think they're the bits that are going to be difficult. John, how about you? Look, I think the thing to look for, and, um, and, and this is what, was right in 2019 um, in terms of the election is what the story isn't about perhaps three quarters of a dozen marginal seats. If, if you understand that, you'll understand what's going to happen in the election. Thanks so much for joining me on Fourth Estate today. You've got good, good stuff, on you, Toby. Buddy. On that note, I'd like to thank Peter Lewis and John Utting for being on Fourth Estate. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER in Sydney and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a whole lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter, our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer Marlene Even and executive producer Anthony Dockrell. I'm Toby Hemmings. Thanks for listening.